Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number three in our series on world history, in the second half of world history. The last episode, we looked at the second part of our take on the Industrial Revolution, and not only the products and what it did for humankind, but the impact of the countries that went with the Industrial Revolution, as well as those countries that took a pass and found themselves falling further and further behind in world trade and international recognition. In this episode, our third on the second half of world history, we're going to be looking at the transatlantic economy, trade wars, and colonial rebellion. Remember that by the time the Industrial Revolution sets in, it is becoming commonplace that more and more of those discoveries centuries ago by Christopher Columbus and his successors of the land that was, in their estimation, the Europeans' estimation available to them in North, Central, and South America was becoming overwhelming in terms of its size the more and more that the era of discovery continued to explore and discover more land. That said, just to put this into perspective, the European countries, as mentioned during my series on uh, podcasts in the first half of world history, the European countries collectively will not come close to the size of the poppy of the land and square mileage that North America by itself offers or South America possesses. As a result, they're going to be looking for ways to make that land work for themselves. But the problem is prior to the industrial era, all of that work either had to be done by human hands or by means of the power of animals. So let's take a look at then the way that these European mother countries that are colonizing here in the new world, and that primarily of course would be Spain, Portugal, France, and England. They're engaging in colonial trade under an economic system called mercantilism. Mercantilism simply put is an all or nothing economic model. And therein lies its inherent danger as well as its fallacy. The idea was, is that colonies coming in, they're supplying all the raw materials, would be brought to the mother country who would turn those raw materials into finished products and provide the administration back in the colonies. The idea, though, was that all goods would pass through the mother country and from there would engage in the world trade. It would that model kept the colonies from becoming too powerful or too self-independent. As a result, however, it laid the seeds for some serious violence 
and discord between the individual European countries. Because the, the model of the perfect mercantilist economic system was that any one country possessed everything that its citizens needed, and anything beyond that was therefore sold as excess, or in other words, exports. So for England to take that mercantilist model and be able to operate it at its peak efficiency, theoretically, that would mean that everything she was getting from the Americas and her other overseas colonies around the world would satisfy every need and want that a British citizen had. However, the icing on that cake, or the ability to eat that cake as well, would be that Britain would be producing so much that she would be able to sell her excess material, her excess goods, to neighboring countries such as France, Portugal, Spain, the Netherlands, etc. That would be the ideal model. And that's why inherently it is problematic. Because if that's this ideal world for England, then why wouldn't France want that too? And how about Spain and Portugal? You see, there's no way all of those countries can produce everything that their citizens need to the point of having excess because of every country's operating as efficiently as possible under that mercantilist economic ideology, the whole idea would be therefore that the excess would be sold. But who are you going to sell it to if everybody else's economic system is working perfectly? And that's why, again, it was, it was uh, strewn with problems. In other words, the theory might have looked great on paper, but didn't match reality. But that was the, the, the model, nonetheless, of mercantilism in the post-pre-industrial and into the early industrial era. That leads us then to reaping these raw materials from the colonies. As it became evident to the explorers that eventually worked their way over from France and Great Britain as well as Portugal, it began to dawn on them fairly quickly that there was a lot of land. And please, again, I don't presume that this land was open and free for the taking with a bunch of real estate signs saying basically, you know, here all you have to do is grab the sign, plant your flag in the land of yours. This land was occupied. It was occupied by Native Americans. We know that now, we knew that then. However, revisionist history sometimes like to erase that fact that in fact people were actually settled here. The problem was for the natives is that the Europeans that were coming over were far more technologically advanced when it came to the military. And for that reason, they would become eventually the subjects of the European conquerors is the way they viewed them. So for that matter, a reason, please know that the whole idea that when Europe, the uh, Europeans decided to engage a slave population, we mythically believe, and sometimes erroneous history books will back that up, that the Europeans immediately turned to Africa because of racism to subjugate those people. And in fact, that wasn't the case. It would be way too expensive and unnecessary for Europe to turn towards Africa for a slave population. First off, in terms of from their perspective, the European colonizers and traders, the idea that slavery existed since ancient times and therefore justified modern slavery was also inherently problematic because that was truly twisting the historical record on slavery in the ancient world. Yes, slavery did exist. Heck, it's men mentioned how many times in the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. 
However, slavery, outside of the world of when it was done, when country A conquered country B and took country B's citizens and sold them into slavery, that still is not done for the same reason that the Europeans are going to be colonizing, enslaving people in the coming years. More often than not, slavery existed within individual countries. In other words, a citizen within country A being enslaved by a citizen within country B, a country A, excuse me. In other words, within one country's boundaries. That was legal because slavery was done as a means to pay a debt. The whole idea is if that man A owned man B money and there was agreed upon debt day when the debt would be paid in full. If A could not pay B, A became slaves, the slave of man B until the debt would be paid off either by the spouse and or kids or man A would work for man B long enough until the debt would be repaid. That was the idea of slavery. That model, however, would be twisted grotesquely to justify slavery in the 1600s and beyond. The problem, again, with the European colonizers, with the mother country, again, was the vast amount of territory that, that needed to be turned. The soil turned, the soil worked, seeds planted, harvested, etc. All of that needed a huge population in order to work that land. The problem was there simply was not enough people within any one, one individual European country to be able to work the land overseas. There simply was too much land. That said, before they realized that, the Europeans, again, they did not turn towards Africa first. They actually tried tapping other populations to engage in the slave trade. First off would be the most obvious and the least the path of least resistance would be to enslave the Native Americans, which was tried repeatedly throughout the colonies on the eastern coasts of North, Central, and South America. Plenty of accounts, historical accounts, of the Spanish, the Portuguese, French, and English attempting to try to enslave the Native populations. Once again, the area, the areas of problem here is that there wasn't enough Natives simply to do this. Part of that also was due, the problems that ensued, is because the natives could communicate with one another. And the European colonizers didn't understand the Native American language. So it would be very easy for the natives to plan either an uprising, to plan an escape, plan an attack, and the natives could communicate right out loud to one another because the European colonizers couldn't understand it. Secondly, the natives knew the land. They knew what was around the next bend. They knew what types of clouds meant just a light garden variety thunderstorm and what type of clouds would be bringing a devastating storm. They knew the insects. They knew the animals. They knew where they could run away if necessary and plot their revenge. In short, trying to enslave natives simply wasn't going to work. We also mythically believe that many Native Americans died off to the diseases that Europeans brought to them. But that makes you wonder, why was the Native American immune system deficient compared to the European immune system? It wasn't. 
Once again, that's a twist on the history because it is the European descendants who will write the history, not the Native Americans. The bottom line is, is that Europeans were dying off at as fast a rate as the Native Americans were dying off. The bacteria that grows plentiful, that is normal in food and water in the Americas, the European immune system wasn't used to. And they also would be affected by that, getting severely sick and in some cases bringing on death. Likewise, the food and the water, as well as the air exhaled from the Europeans coming over to the Native American lands, their immune system would not be ready for. It's the reason why I had to have certain inoculations. When I traveled to over four, uh, 22 countries and four continents, depending upon the area of the world that I was going to and how long I was going to be there, my doctors advised me on whether I needed certain inoculations, again, to boost my immune system to recognize the bacteria and other microscopic organisms that exist in the water and the air that my immune system isn't going to be used to. So enslaving, again, Native Americans wasn't working. So the Europeans then turned to themselves to tap certain populations back in Europe to bring over here and force them to do the work for free. And of course, that population they would tap were European prisoners. But once again, that didn't work. If for no other reason, there wasn't enough of them to work the land. Secondly, those prisoners, while they may have been illiterate, they knew the language. They knew the language that the European colonizers knew and they could communicate to one another. So that didn't work. Then the European colonizers tried a third group. What about tapping a population that wants to come over to the new world and, a stay, and stay here and eventually make a way for themselves? The idea of indentured servants. Two problems with that. One is it's caught, cutting into the profit margin. Two, the indentured servants also knew the land excuse me, knew the uh, language. And actually a third problem was that the European indentured servants, once again, there just wasn't enough of them. So it would be that by the early 1600s, when the European colonizers were shaking their fists in anger and scratching their heads in frustration as to where could they go to find a massive population that they could enslave. It wasn't an easy task. In other words, what the European slave traders needed was a population that A, did not know any European, or in other words, Latin-based language. They needed a population that could not understand the language the Europeans were speaking. B, they needed a population that did not know anyone else who spoke their own language. C, they needed a population that did not know the Americas, maybe didn't even know they existed, and therefore had no knowledge of the land. And a fourth criteria, letter D, where could they find a population that was as close to Europe or the Americas as possible? Looking at a world map, if you want to put this podcast on pause right now, or if you're driving, put this on pause later, I recommend that you open up a Google Earth and look at where Europe is compared to the Americas, and you see the Europeans drawing the same conclusion you would. Hello, Africa. That's the closest 
point. That's what would kick off what became known as the infamous three-point trade system, Europe, Africa, and the Americas. Please note, once again, in revisionist history, that not all Africans were enslaved. This notion that once the Europeans eyed the African continent, that boom, any African citizen that they approached automatically became a slave. Just how dumb does the average person think the Africans were? That they had no knowledge of their own land, couldn't communicate, and couldn't recognize a threat when they saw one. Sure they could. And that's when the Europeans started exploring Africa almost as feverishly as they were exploring the Americas. Consider this. The Europeans found North, Central, and South America before, years before, they even knew how far South Africa went because there was very little interest in the continent from the European perspective. But now that there's massive thousands and thousands of square miles of land to work in the Americas, and they need a slave population to do it, suddenly the Europeans are whipping out their encyclopedias and looking up A for Africa. Exactly. So therefore, the border countries that had the Atlant that were interfaced with the Atlantic Ocean, not only did they not become slaves themselves, they actually assisted in the slave trade all along the coast. Because remember, a European ship sailing in to modern day to, to modern day, for example, country of Togo isn't going to drop anchor and pull 100 slaves onto the lower decks of the ship and then take off because that violated letter B that I reviewed above. They needed a population who did not know their own language, who did not know anybody else that spoke their own language. This is the reason why from the northern part just south of Morocco on the western coast of Africa all the way down to just north of South America, excuse me, South Africa, it would be all along that coast that truly became, as one student put it to me, sadly, the literally the, the uh, equivalent of window shopping for the slave traders. Because every, anywhere that they dropped anchor to pick up a slave population, they never wanted more than maybe four to six slaves that would be brought on deck blindfolded so they would not see anyone from their own tribe or their own area or country and would be put not only on different decks, but different sides of the ship, either the front or the back parts, so that again, there could be no communication and they would be sold that way separate so that even the slaves within the ships themselves again would not be able to communicate with one another because there would be different languages. This is part of the reason why the slave trade took so long for a slave trading ship to leave the ports of Europe, get down to Africa, spend anywhere from four to six weeks before they would then turn their ships to the Americas to engage in the final step, which would be the actual of selling the slaves or trading in the Americas. So when the European slave ships arrived outside off of the coast of African countries, of course, these uh, citizens of those countries began to fire upon through means of arrow or whatever else, 
the European slave ships. They didn't know why they were coming, but they assumed that those European ships weren't here collecting for the Red Cross. So as a means of trying to demonstrate their peace, the European slave traders would therefore float finished goods and raw materials from the Americas to let the citizens of those African nations be able to explore them, to look at them, and most importantly, to want them. And then the slave ship would continue down the coast until eventually every territory, every area was exposed not only to finished products, but also to raw materials. Once a demand started working its way in, that's when they would, again, mind you, we have a huge language barrier here. But once the African citizens started pointing to products that they were holding, indicating they wanted more, the slave trade traders on board their ships would point that they have a lot more of that, maybe bigger, maybe different colors, maybe a different type or style. And they would nod in agreement that, yes, that's what we want. Then the slave traders would put up their hands and have a mock piece of rope tied around it saying that the point in that this is what we want. Again, you can overcome the language barrier to understand what that meant. And that's when the border African countries would go to the interior of Africa, conquer those people, drag them to the coast, and then engage in the slave trade. Ladies and gentlemen, by the height of the slave trade, West African countries were as technologically up-to-date and extremely wealthy compared to the interior countries of Africa because they also were making money hand over fist on the slave trade to the point that in modern-day United States or any country south of here from Mexico down, if black people native to Africa through their ancestors if they could have the genetic code figured out, and many have, they would find that their ancestors all come, with almost no exceptions, from the interior of Africa, never from the coast. So again, a little bit more than what is commonly known or told in the day, in, in the average American or world history textbook. In terms of transportation, the conditions of course, needless to, to say here, we're deplorable. But the myth that, there were, that the slaves were uh, fed nothing but rotten food, were often starved, were given uh, exposure to disease and never cleansed, all of that is a myth. I'm not here to say in any way, shape, or form that the conditions that the slaves were, being, were, were in was anything but deplorable. Absolutely it was. But the fact of the matter is, the individuals that were treated the most horrible on the slave ships were not the slaves. They were the deckhands. They were literally the grunts, the individuals doing the work, the white European hourly workers equivalent. Think about this. Those slave ships were extremely expensive by this point with how advanced they were and how large they were and how many resources were taken to not only build the ship, but also sew those large canvas sails. 
So it is your very, very wealthy European families or corporations that owned the ships. They would then hire a captain who would take responsibility for the ship. There would be nothing paid in advance. The captain was charged with taking that ship, leaving the European port, going down and picking up, on average, 90 to 110 slaves, from there going to the Americas, selling those slaves for dollars or whatever currency they operated in, and then getting that ship back to the European port in best of shape and as fast as possible. Only then would the captain be paid. From his pay, he would then have to pay all of his hourly workers. So you can see, and you can do the math with me very, very quickly, the more deckhands he hires, the less ultimately he puts in his pocket if he's able to have a successful slave trade run. As a result, if they were running low on potable water, if there was, a, there was a massive storm and they were blown off track and they were running out of food, the slaves would not be starved. It would be the deckhands. Because by the time the slave ship made its way back to the Americas and those slaves were sold and all that money brought in, and then that slave ship captain brings that ship back to Europe, at that point, every deckhand is nothing but a liability, is nothing more than an expense that the captain would love to not have to pay, which is the reason why, again, the conditions on the ships were deplorable for everybody and the tension was excruciatingly high. Nobody, by and large, was happy. By the time the captain of the deck of the slave ship made his way back, paid the owners of the ship, their required massive percentage, and he then paid his deckhands, assuming he was an honorable slave trader, which therein, therein lies, I understand it, an oxymoron, an honorable slave trader. But if he was and paid his deckhands fairly, he would be lucky if he could walk away with anywhere from a 9 to 11% profit margin. Now, on the surface, that may seem like a pittance, but think about it in today's modern-day stock market with an average person's stock portfolio. If you're earning anywhere from 9 to 12% a year, you're considered to have a decent year. Above that, of course, is wonderful, but it's not no surprise that we have many years where we're below that. A captain coming back with no profit margin for himself meant that he wasn't paying his deckhands. And these were deckhands that had no tolerance and were as unforgiving as, as, as one could possibly be, which is a reason why, again, the entire journey was fraught with tension. That said, life as a newly imported slave, the fears, of course, would be beyond nauseating. Ironically enough, some, students, some of my students oftentimes are surprised that the number one fear of the slaves who could not understand where they were going or what was being spoken to or about them, the actual fear, the consensus is in modern times, is that their thought that they were being brought somewhere to be eaten. They had no idea what laid ahead for them, of course. Because again, they couldn't communicate, they were always viewed as inferior, it would be no surprise that life wouldn't even be that good for what we would call later on to be a free slave or a former slave. It was also no surprise that some of the uh, slaves eventually converted to local religions as well, if nothing more to perhaps pacify their slave owners, or in some cases, 
to pacify themselves. So that's just a quick overview of the Atlantic slave trade in what became known as the three-point trade, Europe, Africa, and America. At this time as well, we also are getting into the world of the individual wars of the 1700s. Is a simple overview, the wars of the 1700s tended to involve only professional forces, and, or in other words, professional armies. There would be two major areas of conflict. Prior to the age of discovery, the European conflicts, of course, would take place on the European continent. Not anymore now. Now with colonies that were vulnerable to the crown, to the mother countries, Wars now tended to take place sometimes in the colonies as well as in the mother countries themselves. This is the reason why by the 1700s in a world and American history textbook, you'll find that many conflicts have two names, even though they're the same conflict. The name of the conflict would have a European name as well as a name in the colonies. When we return, we're going to take a look at some of these quick examples of these more infamous wars of the 1700s. And then, most importantly, I want to focus, therefore, on the common denominators of those wars that would eventually lead to a British officer who will note all of those prior conflicts and wonder if the time is right to begin a conflict of his own against his own country. And of course, that man will be in the year 1775, no other than George Washington. Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have or book recommendations. If you liked what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review. Uh, a review. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.